now, back to the handsome, effervescent, and humble Jordan J. Adams. I am so excited about our guest today, Lex McMahon, the Chief Operating Officer and Matchmaker of Titan FC. He has managed over 40 world-class fighters and champions, facilitated some of the largest deals in MMA history, including a huge license rights deal between Titan FC and UFC. He's promoted twice. Twice. Get ready for a third one. All right. He's promoted events in Kazakhstan, the Dominican Republic, and of course, as COO, oversees all the day-to-day operations, is deeply involved with talent acquisition, relations, but he's worn all kinds of hats. That's what makes this guy so interesting. He's he's just done so many different types of things. Uh, He was president of operations for an international venture cap firm focused on tech technology investments, responsible for conducting all the due diligence of the emerging markets and investment opportunities. And then way over, now let's go way over on the quadrant, served as founder and CEO of a dietary supplement company that focused on the suppression of sugar cravings. He took the company from concept to clinical trials, to brand architecture, then distribution to over 6,000 retail stores. Huge. And I would say now, Perhaps most importantly, he served his country on the battlegrounds of Mogadishu, Somalia during two deployments while in the U.S. Marines in the early 90s. And he also currently serves on the board of directors for A Hero and the Sean Brock Foundation. Oh my goodness. Just an amazing amount of activity to be crammed into just 24 years of life. Just, 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 just. <laughs> you know, it's amazing how uh, I managed to make that happen. Is <laughs> my mom is actually younger than I am. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> well said. Well said. <laughs> oh, buddy, I don't even know where to start with you, man. Your bio's so long. I knew if I kept going with it that I would, you know, I'd run out of time to do the show. Um, first, I guess right out of the gate, you know, you. They're a West Coaster. You had a lot of opportunities. Why did you go into the Marines? You know, it's interesting. Um, I went to Beverly Hills High School, and I was the first person uh, from Beverly to join the Marine Corps uh, since Vietnam. Um, First one. And, you know, I just felt it it was the right thing for me at that time. Um, it was an opportunity to do, uh, be a part of something larger than self. Um, the Gulf war, um, was very much on the horizon. Um, and this was in August of, of 1990. Um, I saw the handwriting on the wall and just fit, man. Like it just made sense to me and I did it and it was life changing. And I'm, I'm so thankful that I did do it. Yeah, it's remarkable, Lex. Um, you know, when you look at the kids in Beverly, you know, and I lived in Los Angeles for a long time. I know who those kids are. They don't need to go into the Marines, and they certainly don't need to put themselves in harm's way. I mean, it's one thing. I beg to differ. They all need to go. <laughs> yeah, all right. Need, yes. A lot of them need to grow up. Yes, they're afforded a tremendous amount of opportunity. Um, you know, they're set for life in many cases. I mean, there was kids coming to school in Porsches and Ferraris and, and, and Bentleys and not being dropped off driving their own. So it, it's, it's not reality. It's not real world. I, I still have some amazing friends. 
um, that I'm very close with from that school, and I'm so thankful for them. Um, but most of those guys were kind of like me, a bit of an outsider. Like, you know, we made our way into Beverly, and, you know, because either our parent or, you know, in my case, my mom, you know, just busted her ass to get me into that, to live in that area, you know, in a shitty little apartment um, on the wrong side of the Beverly Hills zip code, just so I could go to a great school. Um, and, and a lot of my other friends, you know, had similar circumstances, but we were all there. And I think we were all, you know, we leaned on one another to kind of acculturate through, through that environment. And, um, you know, we've all gone on to do some really cool things. Um, and, you know, here 30 years later, we're still incredibly close. Yeah. The realtors in Beverly, uh, call it Beverly Hills adjacent. Yeah, that's because <laughs> they want to get that Beverly Hills. You say that's, that's right. <laughs> that's right. So when I say a shitty apartment, name, it was a shitty apartment. Yeah, no, man. I know. I lived in the valley, so I I, I am familiar with that. What the apartment was? It was a oh. 1940s bungalow with the coil mm -hmm. heat and the yeah. I'm very familiar, man. It was. I'm still traumatized off living in <laughs> off my time in the valley. But you got to pay your dues, bro. You know, you want to be in you know, you want to be, that's the city where everything's happening. The creativity, uh, you know, I'd be in the dry cleaner line. The dude behind me has a screenplay. The dude in front of me, you know, directs uh, Soldier with Kurt Russell. This is the dry cleaners, you know, just random. Whoever you meet is doing something. Everybody's in the biz, man. Everybody's in the biz, you know, and it, and it makes you up, up your game. And you sure. upregulate, you know what I mean? Because you, you got, if you want to play, you're in, with the big boys now. You got to up your game. And I, I mean, sure. it, it 3X'd me. My first one month in LA, it 3X'd me. I was so glad I did it. So glad I did it. It was brutal, but I was so glad I did it. Um, so you put yourself in harm's way. You served two, you served, uh, two tours of duty. And I, I got to ask this, and, and you don't have to answer if you don't want, if it's an inappropriate question, but you're in the Marines. You're probably seeing action. Yeah, there's nothing inappropriate. That's what we do. Yeah, you know? okay. I mean, um, God created Marines to go fight battles and, and win victories and do it in places uh, that really are austere uh, and incredibly unfriendly. That's, that's why the Marine Corps exists. You know, that's our job. We're, we're not a group that goes and, and no offense to, you know, any other service, but, you know, we don't go and hold ground. We go and take it. Um, we are, uh, we get an extra, you know, probably six or so, uh, in some cases, eight weeks of, of brainwashing. I mean, boot camp uh, to, <laughs> to, to, you know, develop a certain ethos and mentality and esprit de corps that um, help us to be able to go in harm's way and, and, and you know, excel and thrive in that chaos. Now, we'll, we'll circle back because um, there's some some – the story really sweet. And so I'm going to tease everybody, um, you know, about your family. Um, so I'm going to just say the story gets really sweet, but I want to track your progressions and, and see how you ended up in the MMA game. So let's, let's visit one of the other hats that you wore, uh, high tech investing. Um, you know, usually you don't put the two, you know, grunt, and high tech Wall Street, you know, together, the, those two said uh, those two words don't seem to ever mix. How did you end up? And you were you weren't just coming in your ground level. You were vice president of international venture capital for these firms. How did you get into that? You know, sitting in a um, in a dirt fighting hole in Somalia, making twelve grand a year, getting shot at, 
not having bathed in a month. Uh, I, I promised myself the best education I could possibly get. And when I left active duty, I, I made good on that promise. I you know went to the University of California, Santa Barbara, um, which despite being an amazing party school and a beautiful environment is a tremendous academic institution. And um, from there, I uh, went to California Western School of Law, got my JD and um, practiced for a few years and then went on to um, get my uh, executive MBA um, at Pepperdine, which was, you know, a top 20 school in the world. Um, so really an amazing institution. And, and I think the tenacity that I learned in the Marine Corps um, of mission accomplishment at, you know, at essentially any cost um, helped propel me forward. Um, it gave me, um, you know, the understanding of, of digging deep to, to make things happen. And, you know, things kind of put themselves in the right position. And uh, I was, you know, I worked hard and I was fortunate. Uh, it's so inspirational, Lex. There, um, <laughs> there's so many things I want to get to because, uh, you, like I said, you've worn so many different types of hats. By the way, my wife is a wave. Do you see a wave or a waver? Uh, I believe it's a wave. Pepperdine okay. waves. She's a wave. Right. So she says hi. She's she got her JD at, at Pepperdine as well. And when I went Great to visit school. her, I Great said, job. "How the heck do you study? How do you study <laughs> at Pepperdine? It's in Malibu. It's on the beach. Like, how do you yeah. study there?" So Jay, listen, I went to university for undergrad, University of California, Santa Barbara, on the beach. <laughs> I went to law school, Cal Western, down in San Diego, essentially right on the Embarcadero, right on the beach. And then Pepperdine for my executive MBA, oh, oh my right God. on perhaps the most beautiful beach. Um, you know, listen, if you're going to go to school and you're going to suffer, you might as well do it in a beautiful place <laughs> that's right that's right well you did it you did it well uh you were able to take all that education and guide it and direct it and funnel it into all of these financial opportunities one of the other uh, opportunities that you saw and you grabbed was the dietary supplement industry uh you're the founder and ceo of a company that was focused on the suppression of sugar cravings uh you took this company from concept to clinical trials, to the brand architecture, and then to distribution to over 6,000 retail stores. Tell us all about that. You know, that actually came before I did the, 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 tech, uh, the venture capital business. Um, it, it was something that, and it's actually the reason I went and got my MBA, because um, as I was planning to sunset out of working at the law firm, uh, I always knew I would never be a, you know, practicing attorney for long. It just wasn't something I wanted to do. Um, but it was part of my strategy uh, for, you know, kind of positioning myself for long-term opportunities. Um, as I was, you know, getting ready to leave, I, I had this opportunity um, with someone who became one of my partners um, to take this concept and you know take it through clinical trials, do the brand architecture, do, you know, essentially, you know, everything from from the very beginning, uh, conceptually, all the way through execution and, and, and distribution, um, all through North America, and you know, I was fortunate because the opportunity to get out was um, my partner. Uh, one of them was a woman who owned a massive company um, on the multi-level side, um, which is called Newskin, and, and you know, talking billions upon billions of dollars, uh, you know 
global, global multinational firm. And, you know, she kind of mentored me and helped me uh, learn the business and, and ultimately was my exit uh, from the company because she wanted to bring the product uh, into new skin as opposed to uh, keeping it retail. Um, there was a lot of opportunity, a lot less cost overhead associated with it. What people don't realize when you put a product into 6,000 uh, stores is you're paying a lot of slotting fees, a lot of real estate, a, a tremendous amount of marketing uh, to get the turn rate that you need to sustain that. Um, great product, you know, great concept, and it was better served, frankly, to be on a, multi, uh, a kind of a multi-level um, product line. And you know, it worked out great for me because it, it really was my baptism by fire. Um, I learned so much about business, um, truly, from the you know very early stages of a product all the way through launch, and then you know, kind of taking it downstream and exit. Um, learned so much, and so when I when I finished that i was you know looking at what was next i was like okay i you know i've got this kind of foundation of having been a marine um which i use in everything i do it's part of the fabric of who i am i've got this amazing education um you know really top schools in the world across the board um worked at a law firm that was a very prestigious law firm doing unfair trade practice litigation did that you know now i'm an entrepreneur was, was successful with that and I'm sitting there trying to figure out what the next move was going to be. And it made sense to me that the way that I could bring all of those things together would be venture capital. Um, and so that's how I ended up in, in the venture space and how I kind of walked in, you know, venture from never having been in to walking into, you know, a vice president's role. Yeah, as I say, you, you didn't have to come in entry level. So obviously they were taking into account all of the other uh, practices that you uh, had already employed at that point. Uh, and so then that, well, first I want to ask, because did you get a nice parachute when you folded that into new skin? Listen, we did okay. <laughs> Leave it at that. We did pretty good. We did pretty good. Uh, inquiring well, minds want to it know. Wasn't, it wasn't a diamond parachute, but it was pretty good for you, brother. Good. What was next in line? That's for sure. And next in line, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, but next in line, you partnered up with Jeff Aronson and uh, and started. How did you how did you make the transition from supplements and venture capital into mixed martial arts? Yeah, um, life has a funny way of of creating opportunities, and and what people don't understand, and I used to not talk about this. Um, because it, it was something that I felt was a black eye on what had been a really good career. Um, 2008 hit, financial markets around the world collapsed. I had 30 deals in the pipeline in my venture capital firm. I woke up the next morning and um, had none. Lost 30 deals. It destroyed me financially. And um, I had to kind of begin over. And, and part of what I did was, you know, and this is definitely the part that I, you know, used to not tell, but now I wear it as, as a badge of honor because I think it, it, it speaks to true character. And in life, we all go through things, no matter how successful you are. The end of the day, very few people make it unblemished. Those who make it make it battered and bruised because they've fought the battles, they've done the things necessary. They've learned the hard lessons, and I, I'm no different. 
Um, I worked at a, <clears throat> during the day when I was like rediscovering who I was going to be and, and applying to literally every job under the sun that made any kind of sense because I was about to be married. Um, I had a baby on the way and um, frankly, I was scared shitless because I was like, wow, I got all these responsibilities now and all of a sudden things which had been great aren't, you know, from a financial perspective. Um, so while I, during the day I did, um, you know, I looked for every, you know, any opportunity that made sense at night, man, I was bouncing at a bar, um, you know, taking advantage of the fact that I, you know, I needed something that would give me flexibility, you know, at nighttime and I mean, I'm a big guy, you know? And so it just, it allowed me to, to not think while I was earning an income so that during the day I could be sharp for interviews and for, you know, kind of the due diligence necessary to kind of identify and attack an opportunity. Um, and, you know, I'm glad I went through that experience because it's taught me so much about myself as a person um, and, and how you can overcome obstacles. Um, but it's also, you know, helped me understand, man, you don't know when you come across somebody who they are, where they've been, where they're going. You could shake hands with, you know, somebody at the door and, you know, a bouncer at a bar maybe, right? You don't know. You think, oh, this guy's just bouncing at a bar. Probably not that bright. Probably doesn't have anything going on. Look, man, when I was bouncing at a bar, I had an MBA and a law degree and already been, uh, you know, a successful entrepreneur and already done a lot of things really well. Then life happened. And, um, you know, then now fast forward, look at me, Right. I've, I've had success. Um, I've rediscovered success. But if you would have looked at me at that moment in time and made a, a blanket assumption, you would have been wrong. And I think people do that all, all too often. Um, so that's part of why I tell that story now. Um, I want people to understand that across the board, man, we're all fallible. In fact, if you're not making mistakes, you're probably not trying hard enough. Yeah, and I'm real real excited to uh to touch upon that you know i'm i'm tentatively calling this open the cage um because i feel that all of us you know have been down and out at some point and i feel we also create a metaphorical cage around our possibilities we lock ourselves into a cage and uh you know kind of tying together the fighters who go into the cage and that door locks behind you you're locked in a cage and until you can first know you're in a cage because a lot of people don't even know they're in a mental cage. They don't even know that they're limiting themselves with their narrative, with, with the, with a construct that is, is, is completely fabricated. It doesn't exist. It literally thoughts don't exist. They're just clouds in the sky and it's, and it keeps us all locked into this, whatever, whatever the, your, uh, fabricated narrative is, uh, Later in the show, I'm going to ask you to give us some actionable items, how you dug yourself out of the hole, out of the darkness. I, I had sure. to do the same thing. Uh, I want to touch upon uh, the, the fight itself, and uh, that's a nice tease to, to keep everybody listening, that uh, Lex isn't just you – know, Lex, Lex has gone down like all of us, and uh, what he's doing now is remarkable. He's going to give you some actionable items on how – you know take some steps and some ordered steps to – to uh get back in the light man get back in the light uh titan fc we'll come back to that titan fc 
uh, one of the biggest shows on the face of the planet. Uh, you guys, you know, placing, I think you've probably placed as much, maybe the most fighters into the UFC. Uh, I know you started off when you got into the MMA space, you were managing fighters and you'd managed some of the top name fighters. Um, how did you reconcile? I know there were some issues uh, between you know management and promotion where a lot of people are saying it's a conflict of interest because sure. you've got your own promotion and you're managing fighters. How did you reconcile those two different hats you're wearing? Well, first off, I mean, I've done every, you know, virtually every job you can do in the mixed martial arts industry. Um, you know, everything to doing what you do exceptionally well in commentating, you know, and commentating on our own shows to doing endorsement deals to uh, negotiating media rights deals to operations for uh, a promotion to managing athletes like you touched on. You know, I mean, I, I've done it all. Um, when Jeff and I began, um, you know, backing up, we had grown uh, Alchemist, which is our management company, into a very large company. Um, and, and, and as you touched on, you know, we had 40 plus of some of the biggest names in the world, you know, complete A-listers, um, top 10 champions, you name it, we had them all. Um, but man, I was gone all the time. I was gone three weeks out of the month, sometimes six weeks straight. And I tell the story of uh, one trip in particular where I flew from Fort Lauderdale to Macau, which is 32 hours. I was on the ground for 22, flew home. And with the layover, it was 36 hours. Um, was home for two days and flew to Hamburg for a week. And that was common. And I missed five plus years of my young children's life. And that particular year, I missed everything. Every significant event and holiday with the exception of Christmas. Mm. Um, and that kind of got me to the point was, and plus I was just physically exhausted. Um, it got me to the point where I, I felt like, you know, and I'm going to need to make a change. And I started vocalizing that with Jeff. And, you know, the next thing you know, he said to me, he said, hey, man, um, I've always wanted to buy a league. And I know that's the case because he actually tried to buy Strikeforce before the UFC and before Zufa. And, and uh, ultimately, you know, you're not going to outbid uh, the Petita brothers and, and Dana White. So he, he, you know, gracefully bowed out um, when he quickly realized who he was up against. Um but it, he had, that was early on when we had started the management company. So, you know, fast forward another five years or so, he still had the itch. He still really wanted to be a promoter and be involved in that side of the business. Um, so the opportunity to acquire Titan presented itself. Um, it was originally based in, in the Midwest and, you know, had done some good shows, had had a little bit of television distribution, but not much. Um, but it had some good fighters that had fought on the show at that point. So, you know, there was some value in the brand. Jeff said, let's buy it. I said, okay, great. And he said, I want you to run it. And I said, okay, great. Um, and we began winding down because I was just so tired and tired of traveling all the time, you know, the management side of things. And, you know, began to understand that there was an inherent conflict um, in managing athletes and being a promoter. Um, so, you know, the way I've dealt with it, I do still manage several fighters. Uh, Stefan Struve, notably, Jose Shorty Torres, um, Brendan Schaub, although Brendan does not um, fight, obviously, anymore, but he has segued into 
the entertainment world and in podcasting. Quite, quite nicely, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's doing 20 million downloads a month, buddy. Let's let's talk about that and getting that monetized. Um, so I still work with him a lot, and you know, he's you know uh, one of my longest uh, you know clients. Um, but the way I've dealt with the conflict is I get asked all the time by fighters to manage them that fight for me, and I always say no. Um, Shorty Torres asked me because I found him. I found him in Bahrain when he was an amateur, um, who's definitely ready to go pro and make a splash. Um, I said, you know, I signed him to Titan, and he said, okay, great, but I want you to sign me and or you know manage me. And I said, you know, man, I, I just can't do it. It's inherent conflict. I said, but I'll make you a deal. If you move on to the next level, um, you know, I'll do everything I can to promote you and build you as a promoter should. Um, if you move on to the next level, then I'll, I'll take over and manage you. Um, that removed the conflict for me because when he did go on to the UFC, and I'm the one who put him in the UFC because I just called, you know, when it was time, I said, hey, he's ready. And, and the UFC agreed. And, um, you know, next thing you know, he was, you know, fighting for his life and getting dumped on uh, his head and still coming out with a, a victory. Um, but, <clears throat> you know, that's really the way that I've handled it is I don't manage anybody um, who, who fights for me, um, or is going to fight for me. Um, I try to run a very boutique agency with only a handful of, uh, represented clientele and, you know, the rest I'm focusing in on promoting fights and, and, and new business ventures. Um, not today. So I'm going to tease you a little bit, Jay. I'm going to be announcing a new, a new project really soon. That's going to be super exciting and it will keep me in the combat sports world um as well so you know wow. just something else in addition to what we're doing at titan i love titan titan's my baby and Je jeff and i have invested a tremendous amount of uh, resources and time and energy into it and growing it uh so that's not going anywhere uh but new things are coming oh man we gotta break it right now let's break it man let's break it come on Break Jeff would probably break me. He would probably break me. <laughs> hey, tell us a little bit about Jeff. Uh, we we had mentioned him earlier. Uh, you know, he's longtime friends with Jeff, and he's just a monster, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah, Jeff is. I mean, you know, he's a guy who's a serial entrepreneur. Um, you know, I've known Jeff and been partners with Jeff for almost 12 years. Um, I met Jeff. Um, I negotiated a contract with, with my dad for my dad to appear in a Super Bowl commercial alongside MC Hammer. Um, and during the course of the negotiations, Jeff and I, you know, became friendly and, and, you know, had a good rapport and he, we actually filmed the commercial at my dad's house. Sorry, buddy. Oh, no worries. My, chil my children's school is calling me. Uh, <laughs> is it an emergency? No. no oh, okay. No. It, right. It's those, one of those calls that's like, we just wanted to let you know that it's very important that Broward County has your support. No. Oh, no, yeah. I'm <laughs> familiar. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, you know, he and I were sitting at the craft um, services table talking um, the day they were filming the commercial, and we started talking about fights. And, you know, we both had a, you know, a real passion for it. It was pretty obvious. Um, Hammer did as well, actually, you know, and I didn't know this at the time, but Hammer had – had managed Vander Holyfield. Um, and he had, you know, a lot of experience um, dealing with athletes as he was growing and diversifying what he was doing from a business perspective. Um, but anyway, you know, so commercial goes great, goes on to become, you know, the, the most um, successful 
uh, commercial, I think that year. And, you know, a few months later, um, I get a message from Jeff. Hey, you know, I want to start sponsoring fighters with my company. And I said, I'm Marine. I don't say no. <laughs> I mean, I'm like, sure, man, of course. And I'm like, how the hell am I going to do this? I found a way to get to Randy Couture. And at the time, you know, Randy was, you know, he was the biggest star in the sport. Totally. And, you know, I mean, obviously a Hall of Famer now, um, but he was massive at that particular time. And um, I looked on and I said, Randy, you know, I, I got a check for you. Uh, it's going to be a pretty big check. And I just need you to put this logo on, on your, your, you know, your fight shorts and um, we'll call it a day. And that began my kind of almost, it was almost my apprenticeship in the sport because I spent a year writing checks. And when you're writing checks, everybody in the sport wants to know you. It's just the way this, this sport is, is, is geared. You know, it's, um, you become very popular very quick, including with the UFC. So I got to know everybody very fast because I was a guy writing checks and they were big checks. Um, you know, this is at the time when sponsorships were, you know, a huge part of an athlete's overall income. Man, before Reebok, uh, yeah. Way before. And this is yeah. like, I mean, we're, we're talking where a guy was getting fifteen dollars or $20,000 or a t-shirt for a fight. Wow. You know, I mean, you know, and that's a, that is a game changer for these kids. You know, yeah. they don't have two yeah. dimes to rub together. So, yeah. yeah. No, I mean, they, they, that market has changed significantly. Um, but, you know, when I was first starting out in the, you know, handling the sponsorships for Jeff, you know, it was the Wild West. And so you could really get some crazy things done. And, um, but anyway, Jeff and I did that for about a year. And, you know, one day I, I, you know, I just said, man, you know, I was looking at it through my, my business lens. And I said, you know, bro, I, I feel like there's a real opportunity, at, you know, at the time, you know, there weren't a lot of, there wasn't a tremendous amount of business acumen within uh, the athlete representatives. Um, it was a lot of moms, dads, boyfriends, girlfriends, bail bondsmen, strippers, you know, friends, you know, there, there wasn't real agents. It didn't exist. Um, unlike, you know, MLB, NFL, NHL, NBA, that all have players associations um, and all mandate that you have a master's degree or high le level of education or get an exemption, which is very difficult to get. And you have to pass a test um, and have a background investigation. What, you know, MMA doesn't have that. It still doesn't have it. It doesn't exist. Um, so there was a real opportunity for some, you know, a group that had those things. And, you know, Jeff has a master's degree as well. And um, was, has been a very successful entrepreneur and marketer. Um, so I said to him, I said, man, there's this opportunity. I think we should start representing athletes. And he just laughed. And I said, why are you laughing, man? He goes, why do you think I had you doing this for the past year? I wanted you to make the contacts, learn the business. This is what I really want to do. You know, we should do it. And, um, but let's get Hammer involved. And so we did. So, you know, here I am, 2009, partners with MC Hammer and, uh, you know, Jeff Aronson. Um, wow. You know, it's definitely, you know, Jeff and I are like brothers, you know, in a lot of respect. There have been days that, that we've battled it out and literally on a boat where we got into physical altercation and he, he threw me into the water while we were shark fishing and it had chum in the water. 
and I got out of the boat and punched him right in the face. Oh, wow. We've, but we're, we fight like brothers, you know? We, yeah. At the end of the day, we have one another's back. Um, we've been through a tremendous amount, ups and downs together, um, personally, professionally, you know, you name it, man. We've been through it, and we've been partners, you know, for, for 12 years. Um, when you're partners with somebody that long, um, you really know a lot about them. And um, if it wasn't for Jeff Aronson, I, I wouldn't have the opportunities that I have today. Um, he believed in me. He, he saw that I had the drive and the, the, the talent and the intellect to, to d- create something special. And he empowered me to do it and then added his own elements to it. And, you know, and he and I go back and forth all the time. Um, he's an incredibly busy guy. I mean, he's had so many successful companies and now he, he and his wife are, you know, running, uh, it's a 10, which is a massive multinational firm. Um, you know, they're in the midst of their international launch, uh, now. And I mean, when I tell you, I, I couldn't even begin to tell you how big it is, but let's just say they, they just bought a house on star Island. Like it's big, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's a testimony to hard work because, yeah. because Carolyn, when she started the company, um, was a hairdresser, you know, a stylist. Line and selling product. Uh, you there? Yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me? Jack? Can you hear me? Uh, I think my headphones died, buddy. We're going to have to go right. without them. I can still you hear there? you. Can you hear me? Yep. Yes, I okay. can. Um, but anyway, she was a, uh, you know, she's kind of that John Paul Mitchell story. She was selling, you know, product out of the back of her, um, out of the back of her car, man. So it's an amazing story. And, and Jeff, they, so they came together and formed kind of this uber power couple. Um, they've, you know, they have several companies on their own, but they also come together and form several companies. They just formed a record label, um, that's already launched its first artist and doing great. Um, so, I mean, Jeff is, uh, he's a serial entrepreneur and, you know, he puts his money where his mouth is and gives it a shot. And if it works great, and if not, he's a big boy and he, he, he takes it and moves on to the next thing. Wow. So. One of the things you guys did so well, um, when you first picked up Titan FC, I believe out of Kansas, yep. they had a CBS deal. We did. Um, well, well, we what, actually put the deal in place. When we, they didn't have a deal. We put it ah, in you put the CBS deal in place. Um, at some point, you um, made the decision that it would be better to play in the sandbox with the UFC rather than try to go head-to-head. And you did, as you said a couple times, you you did the uh, the fight pass deals with the UFC. How's that worked out for you? It's been great, man. You know, I mean, they, you know, Dana is and has been a great partner. Um, his team at Fight Pass has, has continued to grow. I mean, they they had some times where they're trying to figure out what Fight Pass was going to be, especially um, as they were going through the ESPN. Uh, deal and ESPN plus and, and their obligations there. Um, what kind of content was going to be uh, resident on fight pass versus resident on ESPN plus. Um, but as Dana, you know, we just finished our, our second deal. I, I'd been out there and I'd taken him a bottle of tequila to say thanks. And, you know, we sat and had lunch and, and a few drinks together in his office, by the way, coolest office I've ever been in. I've been <laughs> times over the years. It is the coolest office I've ever seen. Was this the one on Sahara or the one on the 215? So both of them, because he essentially replicated. The new one is just even bigger. 
You know, it's got this amazing bar and it's three rooms. One room is this amazing bar. The middle room, he doesn't have a desk. He doesn't have a computer. He just has like a uh, bunch of couches and like a, a dining room table. And he does his meetings sitting on the couches and, you know, he'll bring lunch in and sit and he do meetings at the table. And then he's got a gym that's massive, massive. That's the third one. Um, but he's just got so many amazing uh, pieces of art in his, his office. That's what gives it character and makes it cool. You just walk in and you're like, wow, this is incredible. <laughs> uh, but anyway, Dana, um, you know, he was always a gentleman to me in terms of us structuring deals and getting things done. And so anyway, I, this is typical quintessential Dana. I, I, you know, I said, shot him a message after I'd gotten back from, from Vegas and, and that lunch. And, you know, we kind of finished and finalized everything with the contract. And I said, Hey boss, just wanted to, you know, send you a note to say, thanks, man. Really appreciate it. You know, I, I, I think I believe in fight pass and, and what it represents the opportunity that it affords the athletes. And his response to me was Lex, we're really fucking behind fight pass. It's gonna happen. It's gonna get big because I'm behind. And that's Dan. With all the superlatives and the colorful language, that's Dan. And and he so he's behind Fight Pass. It's growing. I have more meetings with them, taking new products to them. Um, you know, there's a lot of opportunity that's gonna be coming up, and I think it's still a, an incredible value proposition for for the fans. Absolutely. It's short money. I mean, uh, for the just the sheer volume of content, the sheer volume of replays. <laughs> Uh, you know, I've been on it a long time. I, I love it, you know, and, uh, you know, and, and that's, that's where I watch my Titan when I'm doing my research There you go. <laughs> and I like what you guys do too. Um, and you know, showing love to the UFC and showing that it's reciprocal, unlike a lot of other promotions, if a fighter gets a deal, gets an offer from the UFC, you have a Zufa out clause which immediately allows them to move on and move up to the UFC. Uh, in, does that help you attract even better talent? Yeah, of course it does. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, I get guys uh, and gals that are, are really top-tier talent um, that are fight away, maybe two fights away. And, you know, they'll come fight for me. And frankly, I can get them at a, a rate that maybe I couldn't normally afford because of their talent. Um, but they know that A, they don't have to be locked down, that if they're close, they're going to get the opportunity to leave. And more than anything, I've developed a reputation over the years as being someone who, who advocates for his fighters. Um, so I, I, my approach is that I work in conjunction with the fighters' representatives, um, or I go rogue and do it on my own. It's, it's been known to happen where I just call Dana and sit down with him, and I'll be like, look, you got to sign this dude. And I have a highlight package put together, and I send it to him, or I sit down with him and show him on my phone. And, um, you know, we've signed, we were just looking at the other day, uh, well over 120 fighters to the U.S. Wow. Many of those fighters have come from me calling directly. Volcano is the man. Great story, right? Actually never fought for fighters. Slighted to fight for fighters. And he kept having one kind of disaster after another, like fight day, his opponent ends up being, uh, pulling out of the fight. Um, 
you know, an hour before they're supposed to fight. Just all kinds of different things. And finally, you know, two days before I believe he was fighting either it was either a title contender fight or a um, or an actual title fight. And I, I called the matchmaker, I believe it was Mick Maynard, and I said, Mick, I see you got some movement going on and you got some openings where you can fill fill the space. I'm telling you, you gotta sign this kid Vulcan, man. I, I see him train every day. Um he, he's a monster. He's supposed to fight me, for me in a couple days, but you, you need him and you need to take him and, and not have him fight and just take him out. And, and they did. And, you know, Vulcan has been very vocal uh, since he was signed and, and, you know, giving us, you know, some credit for that. And, you know, so I'm appreciative. I don't seek it. At the end of the day, I do it because I, I want these guys to have the opportunity. I think that understanding your role in the environment is important, you know, in the ecosystem. And, my, and Titan's role in the ecosystem is, you know, we're teeing up the next the next superstar for um, the UFC. Like, that's our role. I have zero issue. In fact, I take pride in it. Um, we're not going to be the, the, we're not going to beat the 800-pound gorilla. I mean, that's why we made the decision, you know, when we did, not to go head-to-head with them, but rather to, to align ourselves with them. Um, and, it's, and it's worked out great. You know, we didn't, you know, initially we didn't have a deal with them, um, but we still took that approach. And, you know, stars aligned and opportunities presented themselves and, you know, been partners with them for, for five years, going into our sixth year. And, and you know, we've got, uh, uh, I think, you know, a new opportunity for a contract to come up and, uh, you know, within the next 12 months or so. Um, and I think we'll probably sign the new deal way before that that 12 months comes um we're already in those discussions yeah you know in the end the business is to make money and uh you you, you do the math and you figure out if you go head to head with the 800 pound gorilla they crush you you get your ass handed to you or you could team up and create synergy and help fighters and grow fighters and like you say put put you know, change over a hundred fighters lives. I mean, you know, in the end, you know, you're a military guy in the end, look at that. You, you changed a hundred kids lives uh, for the positive, the game changer, the biggest, probably the best memory of their life, you know, maybe short of a marriage or, you know, or, you know, a birth of a child is making it into the UFC. You helped over a hundred people uh, achieve that dream uh, and making money at the same time. I, you know, I, I, I applaud you. And of course, like when you said, I'm proud of it. Yeah. Damn straight. (laughs) You know, uh, we had that fun night where Dana and Matt Sarah came to your show and, uh, they were filming, uh, that show looking for a fight, which I freaking love. And, uh, they came in and, uh, you know, the big, the big fighter they were looking at at the time was Jason Suarez, who was undefeated and fighting in the main event. And everybody was thinking Suarez was getting signed that night. At the time, and- he was 12 and 0. He had probably 350 people, 400 people there just for him. You know, the house was rocking. Everybody, and, and I thought he was, how about this? I thought he was getting signed because, A, I'm the one who had Dana come out because I sat there again with my phone. I'm like, Dana, look at this guy. You know, all these great, you know, I showed him a, the highlight reel finish of Kyle Uruguay and some of his other great fights. And, and Dana's like, yeah, man, let's do it. I love it. And um, Jason didn't have a great performance initially, but because he was, you know, his style, he was kind of like a Ben Askren grinding him out, and, but, but dominated. But just, you know, it wasn't exciting. But then 
you know, he got caught. He got put on his backside. And then he came back and he finished the fight. And I thought, you know what? Because Sean Shelby has told me in the past when I talked to him, he'd rather see a fighter or he, he prefers to see a fighter go through adversity before he brings them to the UFC. Because in the UFC, they will go through adversity. There is no question. So he wants to know how they're going to respond. So when I saw Jason go through that adversity and, and come out the other side and on the biggest stage possible in front of the boss, like, I, I, went, I just told his manager, I said, hey, man, just get Jason, bring him in the back. I'll, I'll meet you guys back. I, I swear to God, I was, like, done. And then I'm talking to Dana, and he's like, hey, I want Herbert Burns and Hapio Alves. I was like, awesome. I said, uh, you know, I leaned in. I'm like, what, what about Suarez? He goes, not tonight, man. I was like, okay. You know, and he's the boss. And he's the boss. You know, he's the boss. Yeah, you know, I mean, I didn't see it the way he did, but, you know, he's the one running a, uh, you know, a $10 billion company, and, and I'm not. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, we all had called it. I, I was, I said on the air, congratulations, Jason, on your UFC contract. Kamaru said congratulations on your UFC. We're all congratulating the guy. It's like, what else do you have to do? Uh, but, hey, like you said, it is what it is. And uh, when he does make it, it'll be that much more... You know, it'll be that much more fulfilling. It's even more adversity. Now, this is just one more test, and it's just one more layer of adversity for him to overcome. It's just like the knee that he caught, but now it's a mental test. It's a psychological test. It's a spiritual test. And now he's got to overcome that. Right. And he's strong. Man. He's, he's mentally strong. And uh, when he does, you know, and I'm sure everyone else is knocking on the door anyway for him, you know. Uh, so, Yeah. Well, let's, you had mentioned earlier, because this is one of my favorite things <clears throat> to say, because it, it always makes everybody say, say what? You'd mentioned your dad uh, and the commercial you did. And yes, that last name is very famous. And for a good reason, uh, your dad's Ed McMahon, for goodness sake. Yeah. Uh, and that commercial was killer. There was yeah. something about that commercial that just caught the two generations. Yep. Right, the the gold product. It's well, I, it's a cash for gold commercial that ran during the Super Bowl and blew up everything. Tell Matt. us all about it. It's such a great story. Yeah, I mean, listen again. This is you know when I was going through everything because this is when everybody was going through everything financially. Like this is 2008 into 2009, um, the financial markets were upside down. People like truly were you know, losing their house, their home, you know, or their car. I mean, you name it, everything. Um, and they were looking for ways to get cash and get cash quick. And Jeff came up with this concept of, you know what, send in your gold jewelry. We'll have it evaluated and we'll send you back a check right away. And they marketed it through direct marketing, through infomercial. But they did it with a Super Bowl ad. It had never been done before like that. And they brought in, you know, my dad and MC Hammer, um, who both actually went through financial problems, you know, famously. Um, you know, both made millions upon millions upon millions of dollars and both struggled financially uh, toward at some point in their career. Um, the timing of it to have those two iconic figures as kind of representatives or spokespersons for the everyday person going through the everyday issue was brilliant. It really was. And uh, so it, it resonated with people. 
Um, and it was just funny, man. Like, there were some great, great commercials aspects to it. Like one of the things was the very closing shot, or, or at one point, Hammer is he's got hammer pants on and he's on the stairway, and you know he's saying, "I can send my gold record in," and he's got this gold, you know, one of his many gold records. I mean, he sold 50 million albums. I mean, he had gold records. Um, and then another one was there was a golden toilet sitting on my dad's desk and he put his arm on it and he said, so long, old friend. <laughs> and it was just like a perfect ending. It was a great commercial, man. It was great. And Jeff hired this amazing production company to come in and shoot it and do it. And, and, uh, you know, he, uh, hold on. He, um, you know, he, he just was, he was bright, man. You know, he did it again, too, with a great, another great commercial for It's a 10. Uh, I think it was two years ago in the Super Bowl. You know, there's something about being in front of the, the largest audience in the world at any given time. If you've got the right product and the right commercial, you can really hit it out of the park. And, and he's done it twice. Wow. What a, what a monster. I encourage everybody to go. Can, can people see that on YouTube? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. I encourage everybody to check out that commercial. It's just one of those moments in time. Um, there's something about the generational difference in the, in the two of them going back and forth in rapid succession, all the different old things that they're going to send in that just made me laugh out loud. And I'm sure that's why it did so well, because it just, you know, like you say, there's, it's almost like kismet where it's the perfect storm, the two personalities and the two generational differences, they couldn't be more polarly opposite in a lot of ways and yet here they are as brothers saying i gotta send my golden i'm gonna send my golden it was really really it was just a, a special moment and uh so i mean i just it, it just cracked me up tell us a little bit about um about your dad when when you and and it's well known i mean uh it the story of when you were in the marines and you got a phone call from your mom. Now I was in the service. No one gets phone calls in boot camp. Nobody. No, it does not happen. And yet your CEO says, "Hey, you get a phone call." <laughs> what? What went through your mind when you're in boot camp in the Marines? Well, I mean, back, just go backtrack just a tad, and I understand. Like my mom was 14 when she had me. She she was there's she tells her own story and she's working on platform for that. But essentially, her dad sold her to a drug lord, and 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 took and took the money. And at 14, she was in the desert in Arizona with a three month old child. And um, whether my dad ultimately died or is in prison, I don't know. Don't care never ever been a part of my life or a thought because at three months old she ran away because she when i was three months old she she ran away from him you know and she's only 14 and she um ran grabbed i think she said she had 300 dollars. she was able to get off like the nightstand i mean this guy was 36 you know and she said there was just like containers of marijuana and, and cocaine everywhere and she's like, man, something bad's going to happen. And she just knew it, and she had to get out of there. And, and you know, he had made her a drug deal. She was bearing drugs all over the country at 14 years old because he had me. And if she didn't do it, he could have done something to me. And 
it's just an incredible story of tenacity and perseverance how and love because how she was able to extricate us out of that environment and whatever happened to him man who cares um because fast forward now you know and we'd grown up together she had struggled you know beverly hills adjacent to have me in the right school to you know to have the best opportunity for success and betterment um you know i'm in the marines and boot camp and and she was working as i want to say like a retail salesperson at a store in beverly hills and one of the you know the, the affluent women who would come into the store befriended her and you know my mom was this you know, gorgeous young woman and um she says i got a guy i want you to meet um you're, you're gonna really like him and it was ed ed mcmahon and um she goes on the first date they have a blast they go on a second date that night and fast forward a few weeks and she calls me and she says hey and you know this is you know the phone rings and in, in, in marine corps boot camp and uh you know in the uh, senior drill instructor's hut and you know he sticks his head out and says, recruit report you've got a phone call you know flying up sorry sir, sir. <laughs> sir. you know just <laughs> I was calling. I, I thought for sure you know, your mother was on the phone, and I was just like, hey, he, "He's like, I don't know who you are, but you're gonna pay for this once you get off this phone call." Oh, no. <laughs> and he's like, "Holy crap, man!" And in my mind, I was like, "Holy shit!" So they died. So they died. Yeah. That's the only way I'm getting a phone call. And um, if you know my mom, you'll this next part would make sense. Um, she's like, oh, "Hi, honey. How are you?" I was like, "Um." Okay, mom, what's going on? She's, oh, no, no, nothing like that. Um, listen, you know, we're going to be, you're graduating in a week or two, and I just wanted to let you know that I'm going to be bringing my new boyfriend. I'm like, holy cow, are you kidding me? I smashed for this, and you're calling to tell me about your new boyfriend? I'm like, I don't care. She's like, no, no, honey, like, it's important. Because, you know, he's somebody famous and, and, you know, I would rather you know than not know, and uh, I don't want to surprise you. And I was like, "All right, mom." Like, I was like, "Screw it." I mean, I'm I'm gonna be doing push-ups for the next two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> what do you got, mom? Who's your boyfriend? I'll indulge you at this point because the outcome is gonna be the same. And uh, she goes, "Well, it's Ed McMahon," and you know, Ed was this iconic television personality. But man, I just spent 11 weeks in Marine Corps boot camp, so. I had learned about all the famous Marines. And so I said, oh, my God, do you know he's a colonel in the Marine Corps? And um, also a general in the National Guard, which, you know, most people did not know. I did not know that. Even though he was a general in the National Guard, he always talks about being a colonel in the Marine Corps. Wow. And because the general thing, I think, was honorific. But nonetheless, like, you know, he, he, he earned that. that general that is general, man. Yeah. He earned that full bird, and, and he, he wore it proudly. But anyway, so I, when I first met him, was um, I graduated uh, company honor man, and uh, my family was entitled to be in the um, the commanding general's box um, on the parade field or the parade deck for uh, graduation. Ed would have been in there anyway, but you know, all my friends and, and family got to be there too. And uh, after we graduated, uh, I had the opportunity to come up and shake the. Um, Sergeant Major's hand and 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 uh, the general's hand and next you know I'm meeting Ed McMahon and my mom's like, my new boyfriend and I'm like huh 
Okay. <laughs> I passed with a woman who at 14, you know, living with a drug lord and, uh, you know, was a mule and running, you know, through the deserts of Arizona trying to get away. Um, Dude, I'm seeing a movie. Because I think it's a tremendous testament to, to belief in self, uh, love, because she didn't love me enough to sacrifice and put at risk everything. We would never have gotten out of there. And, um, you know, she stayed true to those kind of beliefs and did everything she could to put me in the best environment throughout uh, our days growing up. And there was times, man, like I was the typical latchkey kid, you know, we had all kinds of really strange characters living in our house because my mom had to have like, you know, nine people as roommates so we could make it. And um, but she did it. And eventually she met Ed and he was truly the love of her life. And uh, he took care of her and, and gave her an amazing kind of French charming sort of life. And it was incredible. And, and, and he ultimately ended up becoming my dad because he truly was the only dad I ever knew. I am floored at this story. I mean, I'm sure a hundred different people have told you at different times, especially as a West Coaster, this needs to be a movie. It does, bro. It has everything. And not just, you know, all the danger and the elements and the drama of, you know, being a mule. And then all of the stardom of one of the biggest, most famous guys in the world. You have all that, which is enough right there to make a movie. But underneath it all, undergirding it, is the sub-narrative of the love and the sub-narrative of the giving everything you have to get your kid out of this, like risking everything. And, and how do you do that as a 14 year old? The wisdom, the, the, the presence of mind as a 14 year old, not just a, this 36 year old who has so much power over you, not to just be like terrified and like, yes, 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 sir. Yes, sir. And never get out because your brain, because you know what happens? The brain that they say like that. I don't know if you're familiar with the Sweden study. There was a study about authority and how you can, you can, uh, once you've got somebody that once you have that authority over them, it's almost like a hypnotic state. Yeah, the uh, this, that's what I was looking for. The Stockholm syndrome. And, uh, Patty Earth, not, Earth, right. 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 Exactly. For her not to have been, you know, all the Manson girls for her not to have fallen into that is a testimony to her brain, to her power of she's, will. She's incredible, an incredible woman. And I, you know, listen, we grew up together and, you know, more brother and sister than, than mother and, and, and son in a lot of ways. And I don't say that as a pejorative because it's not, you know what I mean? We just, we were basically the same age in a lot of respects. And so we just, we had to depend on one another growing up and, um, so we've had our ups and downs, but every time I've thought about, you know, every time I'm like, oh, I can't, you know, I'm pissed off at my mom for something, you know, I mean, that's just life, right? You've, there's always emotion involved in things. And, and so there's, there's been times when I've been upset with her and um, I always think back to what it was like in that moment, make that decision. Or how at 14, when she first had me, she could have either aborted me or put me up for adoption. Because how can, at 14, you even contemplate being a parent? 
I look at my 11 year old daughter now. That's only three years away. It's not <laughs> remotely fathomable. <laughs> my so daughter is 11. It's not even in the zip code. Every time I'm a little chat with my mom or I think, oh, you know, how do you do that? Mom? What? I always go back to that place and I always realize what an incredible woman she is and how much I love her and how thankful I am that she never gave up on me. God. I, a uh, couple quick things. I want to be, A, I want to be uh, very sensitive to your time. I know what a busy man you are. There's two or three things I want to touch on. Do you have a little more time? Of course, Dave. Whatever you need, buddy. Thank you, my brother. Thank you very much for that. Um, you have given back uh, very generously of your time um, to people who are who have served in the military and um, may find themselves in a dark place. Um, I, uh, you know, I had to find a protocol for myself to work my way out of uh, very dark times, uh, and. I'm very thankful Me too, to you Bob. and I'm thankful to people who extend their hand out because when you're desperate and you don't really, when you're dark, man, like the external almost doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what your external is. Like you look at Robin Williams, his external was awesome, right? He had all the money in the world. Everybody on the planet loved him. Uh, you know, had this amazing life was beloved and yet hung himself in a closet when you're dark, you're dark, man. When you're dark, you're dark. It does not matter what's going on on the outside. It's desperation time. You have given your time to two different organizations very generously. One is A Hero, and the other is the Sean Brock Foundation. Could you tell us a little bit about those foundations and how people might be able to contribute if they feel so inclined? Yeah, well, the Sean Brock Foundation, I'll start there. Um, Sean was one of my fraternity brothers um, who was a reserve Marine and after graduation from college, you know, received his commission and, um, you know, was one of the best Marines I've ever met. Like truly incredible. And um, he deployed to Iraq and he was in the head and got blown up by a rocket basically cut him in half. Um, he was such an infantry Marine. As an enlisted Marine, he had one super squad, which is in the Marine Corps, is like the most elite of the infantry Marines when this, this it's a squad level competition. Uh, and, uh, anyway, the most elite group of infantrymen are honored with, you know, the opportunity to, to compete and then really the, the cream of the cream uh, our, our winner. Sean won that as, an, as a enlisted Marine. Um, then became a Marine officer, always led from the front. So when he was, <clears throat> when he was killed, his Marines did everything they could to give him a warrior's ending as opposed to dying on the, uh, the bathroom. Um, they couldn't wrap their head around that. That's how their leader who was, like King Leonidas himself could go out like that. So they tried to take him outside the wire and have it be an incident that occurred while he was on patrol. Um, there's a couple different things. And so when we first found out about Sean, we were hearing all these different stories uh, about how 
and, and you know, we attributed it to the fog of war. You know, oh, the, the lines of communication are coming back. They're, you know, getting third-hand, fourth-hand, fifth-hand information. Because um, we kept hearing, oh, he was, you know, he was hit by a sniper. Oh, he was, um, they came under fire. Because he was, he was killed at Camp Ramadi uh, uh, in Al-Anbar province. And, um, or Camp Blue Diamond, which is in Ramadi. But, you know, some of the reports was that he was on a patrol by Fallujah and fire and he um led his marines into clearing a house and he was killed by an insurgent and then another report came in that you know the same scenario but that he was killed by one of his marines uh, accident um just so many different narratives came out um and it wasn't the fog of war it was just his marines trying to give him the proper send-off and they didn't want him to die that way pants around his ankles that's how he died um, but Sean was an amazing guy so the, the the Sean Brock Foundation was started by a group of his, his friends uh, to perpetuate his name and his legacy um, by offering scholarships because uh, Sean was already working on his second master's degree and had plans for a PhD um, he believed in education and he believed it was a great way of advancement and so the Sean Brock Foundation looks to help uh, service members and their children uh, advance their education levels. Uh, it's it's a great organization. It's something that that you know I am on the board with and I have been uh, for a very very long time. Um, I don't get to spend as much time as I would like because it's it's really a West Coast based uh, organization, um, and I do a lot from here and reach out and support and raise awareness and funds and all that. Um, and it's certainly near and dear to my heart because that Sean was one of my very dear friends. Um, but the other organization, one that I'm incredibly engaged in, is one that I, I get to touch a lot more regularly. Um, and that has an incredible story, too. A Hero, it stands for American Heroes Enjoying Recreation Outdoors. Um, it was founded by a Marine major by the name of Lee Stuckey. Uh, Lee was an enlisted Marine as well. Um, he was a a student at Auburn, uh, sergeant in the Marines, got called up, his reserve unit got called up, um, took part in, in the Second Battle of Fallujah, um, ended up doing three tours in Iraq um, after he got commissioned, blown up a bunch of times. Uh, ultimately, in one 30-day period, he lost 24 Marines. Uh, and some very, that was in 2009, some very difficult uh, fighting. And ultimately, um, he... he was sitting at his desk or his table, and I use a prop, which was the phone. And he had a he had his phone sitting face up, a bottle of Jack Daniels, and his forty five. The bottle of Jack Daniels was empty. He put the forty five in his mouth, started pulling the trigger. The phone rang, and it said "Mama" across the front. He put the gun down. Started crying, picking up the phone, told his mom what he was about to do. And um, she said, baby, you got to come home. Let me love you. Let me take care of you. Let me help you heal. So he took leave and went home. And he spent a lot of time. He's from rural Alabama. So he spent a lot of time hunting and hiking and, and fishing. And, and he did it with, with veterans, veterans of, of Korea, Vietnam, the first Gulf War, fellow veterans from Afghanistan and Iraq. 
Um, and he found it very cathartic. And he said, you know, man, if I'm a Marine Corps captain, kind of like Superman, you know, supposed to be just this battle-hardened, you know, uh, warrior. If I'm struggling and this is helping me, maybe it'll help others. He called me and he said, man, I need help. I said, all right. Since then, we've, we've helped, had over 6,500 um, either active uh, military or veterans come through our programming. Um, we've raised um, well over a million dollars and have put every dime of that to use. It's an entirely um, volunteer-based nonprofit. You know, 94 cents on every dollar goes directly to the warfighter um, that comes through our programming. We're in the midst of building a massive 5,300-square-foot lodge on our, our property up in, um, in Alabama, just outside of Auburn, where we can <clears throat> bring uh, folks in to do hunting and enjoy the outdoors, but also to, you know, sit and, and take classes and, and just have a retreat with their family. And you, you mean, you name it, you know, this facility will, um, I think, be a great uh, focal point. Um, we're breaking ground on that on March 7th. So that's that's coming up, and that's the realization of a lot of dreams, but in hard work. But we have of those six thousand five hundred um, folks that have come through. I've had about three hundred or so people tell me I was going to kill myself had I not come on this. I've now had the opportunity to connect with like-minded people, people who understand me. I, I feel like I, I've got my team again because what we do is every time there's an event you know and say we bring 20 people in for an event um whoever's in charge of that event creates a, a text chain and it's for logistics hey make sure you bring this so and so is going to pick you up at this time meals are at this time you know just all the logistics stuff <clears throat> and it allows us to communicate during the event but really the, the 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 true value in it is these guys are able to walk away with a group of 20, 30, 40. We've had a group, you know, an exercise of 90 people that they got to connect with, they got to, to talk to, they got to open up to, bond with. Um, because a lot of people, when they come back, transition out of the military, especially in a time of war, it's very hard. Um, it's what people struggle with most commonly because they, you, you, you know, the military, as you know, Jay, is all about team. And you've got your team and, you, you know, you make it through some really adverse circumstance because of team. You come back and now all of a sudden you're in the middle of, you know, rural wherever you're from or you know, your city wherever you're from. And you don't have your team. And people can't relate to you, you know, um, and so that's where darkness begins to take a lot of these guys and gals and, and where they suffer. Um, but we give them their team back just by a simple text message chain. Um, so it's, it's a powerful organization. I was just in Alabama this past weekend with my daughters, um, spending some time with Lee Stuckey, our founder, um, planning out some of the things for future. And, and both of us talking about, even now, how we struggled. Lee has, you know, he was blown up a bunch of time and has traumatic brain injury and PTSD and, you know, a, a litany of other issues. But he's an active duty major and, and he's, you know, in charge of 3,000 plus people. Um, you know, he's super successful at what he does and, and, you know, but still struggles. And 
you know, I've been uh, fairly vocal about my struggles and, and how, um, you know, my two tours in Somalia almost broke me and, but then redefined me and have served as a, a source of strength. But I still fight. You know, the battle didn't end on the street of Mogadishu in the Bakara market. You know, the battle rages every night when I try to go to bed. Um, it, it rages when I'm in a crowded place. And I hear a noise. And for me in particular, it smells. Somalia smelled like death and decay because people were literally dying on the streets of famine and, 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 and you know, gunfights. And it just people were left to rot. And so just this god-awful smell of, of death. If I smell anything remotely like that, I become, I'm right back. I'm 19 years old again. I'm sitting behind a 60, you know, on the back of a Humvee, fighting for my life. But if you don't talk about those things, if you don't, if I were to not take advantage of the platform that I have, through all the hard work and, and the opportunities and guys like you reaching out and saying, hey, let's come on and talk, I, I would be failing in my duty, in my, in my responsibility to help other people. Man, I made a shit ton of money. I've lost it, made more. None of that matters. What matters is the legacy that I'm going to leave as somebody who cares, who has compassion, empathy, who wants to lift his brothers and sisters up. If I can do that, then I'll be able to look my girls in the eye and know that I was a good person. And they'll know it too. And hopefully they'll aspire to do similar things. And if, as a group of people, as a society, we can all endeavor to do things like that, we'll be better off, man. You won't see all the bullshit that you've seen now. You certainly see a lot less of it. You are one of the most compelling guys I know, bro. And, uh, at a couple of your fights, much to my surprise, when you would get in the cage and you would share and break down uh, out of the beauty of what you were sharing, you just devastated me. And now I've got to go and c continue on. Like, you know, like me and Kamaro are looking at each other like, how, how do we even talk now? Why does he do this? We're trying to do a show. <laughs> we're looking at each other like, there's no way we can keep going. It's, it, it's so pure. And so beautiful, and it's such a uh, guideline for all of us. Like that, the heart, your the heart of your mom. It's like choosing life over death. It's choosing light over dark. And she passed that on to you. And now you're passing that on to your kids. If, like, we talked earlier about some actionable items for people who might be listening to this, who might be relating to what you're saying right now. What would you say? And I picked the random number of five actionable items, but whatever the number is, what would you say are the two, three, four most important things for a warrior of any stripes? And you don't have to be in the military. What you could go dark without having been in the military. If you're not happy, if you're depressed, if you're going dark, what are the three or four most important things to do to start getting closer to the light? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I appreciate the question, Dan. I'll, I'll tell you when we have. During the course of the, the event that we do at A Hero, um, and I go to as many of them as I possibly can um, to act as a mentor, to you know, be a facilitator, um, you know, to make sure that the, the folks that are there in our programming are getting the right experience. Um, 
at some point towards towards the end, it's not quite at the end because I want there to be time to further engage on it, but I want there to have been enough time for people to have really had a great experience, right? Um, so maybe it's, it's you know, the, the night before the last day, because typically our events are three to four days. So, you know, it, it, there's an opportunity for real bonding to occur. Uh, so maybe it's on that, and we typically do like a big barbecue or, you know, some big, you know, big event. Um, I'll gather everybody together and I'll say, hey, man, did you have a great time? You know, was this beneficial to you? you know, everybody's, yeah, it was awesome. Thank you so much. Great. I said, okay, you've got a couple of, of takeaways. I said, first, you must, and this is applicable as one of your action items, you must know your love. Because without love, there is no reason. There's no reason to go on. There's no reason to work hard. There's no reason to do anything. If you don't know that you're loved, it's hard to love yourself. If you don't love yourself, you can't really do anything, right? You can't, you don't have the capacity to love others if you don't love yourself. Um, and the darkness becomes pretty consuming. So I always say, know that you're loved. Second is to help others perpetuate this concept of, of, of giving back because what I've learned is through the giving back, the greatest healing occurs. I've been a part of almost 65 or over 6,500 different warriors, including Medal of Honor recipients like Kyle Carpenter and, and so many just amazing war heroes come through. Um, I've heard their stories. I've heard their struggles. And here I am just trying to give them a great time and experience, right? And help them heal. And, and what I soon realized was by engaging with them, sitting back and listening to them, my issues came into a, a clear relief and, and I began to understand them better. And I felt better about where I was in dealing with my personal struggles. Because again, we all have struggles, man. It doesn't have to be military. It doesn't have to be anything. Day to day. Alcoholism, addiction, you know, financial struggle. I mean, you name it. Just, man, life is hard, bro. Life is hard. Get down. But if you know your love, if, if you have this capacity of sharing and giving back um, and perpetuating that concept, um, I think you're going to be much better off. Uh, I, I think, you know, in terms of you know, some additional action items, I would say you, you've got to be the hardest thing a human being can do is to be honest with themselves. So that's where it starts. You can't get the love unless you've identified where you are. Accountability. You've got to be honest with yourself. Yeah. Once you, you are honest with yourself, you can then begin that process of loving yourself and then loving others and, and, and then, you know, paying it forward. I think, if I give you those three, if we could, as a, as a society, do those three things, we're better off. And I think as people are struggling in their day-to-day, -day, if they can identify those three things, get up in the morning and just take a, a moment to take stock of your situation. Where are you? What can you be doing better? Um, that, that, that on, again, the ultimate, the ultimate. The hardest thing to do is is, is that truth, that self truth. So if they can, if you can do those things, man, we're in a much better place. Ah, uh, very, very powerful, actionable items. And as you were 
you know, talking about know your love, what kept coming to me, because I've been kind of bouncing around what I want to call the podcast and I've got, you know, different working titles, you know, unlock the cage or uh, open the cage. And as I was thinking about it, it's more like worth fighting for. Worth yeah. fighting for, you know, know your love, know what's worth fighting for. Yeah, we, we all have something. Oh, we man. It's, it's, uh, you know, what's, what's really interesting, Lex, right on the other side of the dark is the light. Bright, bright. Yeah. Like, it's, it's amazing how close it is. Yeah. It's amazing how close it is. For me, the times where I've been honest with myself, and I've held myself accountable, held myself to a higher standard, got out of my ego, got out of my narcissism, got out of me and thought about the other person and how much they're hurting and how much they need help. When that happens, I start getting happy. It's the, it's the weirdest. I'm like, whoa, is that, what it, is that really what it needed to happen? I needed to get out of my own pain and see someone else's pain. And that, I think, is part of all these organizations that you're a part of and you're giving back to them is lifting you up and it's getting you out of your stuff. Like you're, you're helping the next guy who doesn't know that help is there for me. I can only speak for me, obviously me helping the next guy up makes me happy. It's like that. It is teamwork. It's teamwork, man. It really is. I can't do it without you, you know? And I don't know, man, it's just, it's, it's beautiful. I'm still trying to figure it all out. I like, as soon as I start holding myself up, then my ego comes back in again. You know, like uh, say I got this thing figured out. I only know that it feels good to be around people like you, people who have seen the hardship, people who've been on the other side and are working their way out. It inspires me and it makes me say, I got to hold myself to more account. You know, like uh, why am I not getting up at 5 a.m.? What's what's the story? What's what? It's just bullshit. It's a, it's always bullshit. There's, Why always, not get- there's always a reason, man. You can, you can do, I mean, you know, as a parent, right? You talk with your kids all the time. You try to teach them lessons, you know? So my family is going through a hardship now and, and I'm using it as a teachable moment for my 11 year old and my, my nine year old daughters. And I, I say, you know, kids, you can allow what's going on in our family environment presently define you to bring you down to break you down to make you sad to make you angry but you can choose to be happy and you can you can choose to learn important lessons from this that will serve you better on later in life and, and you know i mean look man we all the bottom line is we all go through struggles if someone says they have never struggled in their life they're full of shit they are from that person run as fast as you can because they're not being honest with themselves. If they can't be honest with them themselves, they sure as hell aren't going to be honest with you. That's right. That's right. It's uh, one of the, the, the preambles to this show and the whole one of the reasons I'm doing it is it's not a happy Facebook site. Yeah. I'm not putting out the happy Facebook. I'm being honest about my darkness. I'm being honest about my sadness. Uh, sometimes feeling like nothing is worth it. I, I go, you know, I become nihilistic. I, like, well, what is nothing matters? Like, I can't get a value, you know? And that's when, when I go dark like that, it doesn't matter what's going on outside me. I know I need to reach out. And that's why these networks, that's why your texts that you're talking about are so important, is people need to know 
that they can reach out. If they don't, that's got that's step number one, right? Just it's there. Reach out. It, it, and then you can get then you get a little footing, right? It's like getting a beachhead. It's really it's getting a beachhead on on your life. Getting a beachhead, getting back to the light, man. You got you got brothers out there and sisters out there who've been there, and they they have a protocol. They've worked their way out, right? It's a it's a path. Like you can see a path. All right, there is a path. I can't see it now. I see nothing now, right? It's pitch black. I can't see anything, but I'm just going to trust. Lex told me there's a couple of paths that help him. I'm yeah. just going to trust. Faith, man. You know, yeah. Having faith. Yeah. Yeah. It's a whole different discussion about how you interpret and, and, and embrace faith and what it is, but we all have some level faith in something. Right. And if you can just have faith, you can find the light. You know? Yeah. Yep. And for me too, you know, getting quiet, sitting on a cushion. And um, one of my one of my mentors, I think you'll like this. One of my mentors, who had a gun in his mouth, his his dad was murdered by his dad's business partner for the insurance. And they were big Wall Street heavy cats. I'll introduce you to him. And uh, he did the whole drugs will fix this, alcohol will fix this. Right. womanizing will fix this the whole thing he's in manhattan he's a good looking guy he's got a ton of money and his dad is murdered he had the gun in his mouth he ended up going to tibet and studied under some great masters and one of the things he said to me that never left me was uh you're sitting on a riverbank and you're watching all these things in the water going by in the river all those different things that are floating in the water your thoughts they're gonna not they're not gonna stop all day long brother you're gonna have forty thousand of them you don't have to do anything with any of them. You can just watch them and watch them dissipate like the clouds. They're just thoughts. They're nothing. Right. And it really, that was one of my beachheads. So now I'm developing my witness and I'm watching these thoughts going by. So someone yells at me or someone cuts me off. More often than not now, I'm like, dude's hurting. Or the dude's unconscious. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, that's yeah. not what we used to do. Yeah. In, in Boston in the 80s and 90s, someone cut you off. That's not what we used to do. And I was True. like, dude's hurting. Dude's trying to get his daughter to the hospital, whatever. I'll say whatever. Right. But I have more time now in between the stimulus and my Pavlovian drooling. Like when I hear that bell ringing, I'm not drooling as quick. I still fall, I still fall victim to it, but less and less and less. And that's yeah. the meditation. As you're headed down that path, you catch yourself and, and you're like, wait a minute. You know, it helps to center you again. More and more catches. When, the daughter, when my daughter's acting up, more and more catches. Opportunity yep. for practice. OFP, yep. opportunity for practice. <laughs> Brother, you've been so generous with your time. We're on an hour and a half. My pleasure, bro. <laughs> hey, if people want to get more information about Titan FC... Give us that information and also, you know, a hero and the Brock Foundation. Any of anything that people should know about, they want to get in touch with you. What's the best way to do that? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm easy. Instagram happens to be kind of my favorite medium of communication, um, just because it's visual. You know, you got the video and all that. So I'm just at Lex McMahon on Instagram. Pretty easy. Um, I'm on uh, Facebook, Lex McMahon. Twitter, Lex McMahon MMA. Titan. We're Titan FC, Titan Fighting Championships. We're easy to find on all those same platforms. 
And um, love to hear from you. And A Hero is just A Hero uh, USA.org. Check us Thank, out. Thanks for shining the light, brother. You're making a big difference in the world. All right, my friend. Thank you. All right, see you. Talk to you. For our full schedule of fights on the NBC Sports Network, CW and ABC affiliates, visit unitedfightalliance.com. United Fight Alliance. United we fight.